The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au His faith was counted as righteousness. We looked last week at what is faith. What does it mean? Faith in the Old Testament, New Testament carries several meanings. It means trusting God. It means trusting that God is able to keep his promises. If you keep reading in Hebrews 11, you'll see there how some of these did not receive the promises, but they were still convinced that God is able to keep his promises. Now, I said last week about faith and knowledge. I said faith comes first and knowledge comes later. And I looked over and somebody was giving me this look of, what in the world are you talking about? And then in the wake they came and asked and we had a chat about it. And I suddenly realized what they were thinking was, yes, of course, knowledge is required in order for us to believe. The, The simple explanation of faith is it requires three things. Knowledge, number one agreement, number two, and trust, number three. The knowledge that comes after faith is an experiential knowledge. Uh, One of the first times I ever preached a sermon, many years ago, I preached in Isaiah chapter one, and talking there, Isaiah talks about uh, the faith of the people of God, and he says in verse four of chapter one, of Isaiah, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers. No, that's the wrong verse. Back up. Isaiah 1, verse 2, down the end there. He says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. And the idea there is the knowledge that the ox and the donkey have, which Israel does not have, is a knowledge that's gained by experience, by day-to-day walking with the Lord. When Peter talked about, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God, he's speaking of faith First of all, but he's also speaking of walking with Jesus every single day, seeing all the things that Jesus did and realizing by the experience of God, the son, that this is no ordinary man. And that knowledge was a knowledge gained by experience. So, yes, we absolutely need knowledge. You need to understand the truth of the gospel in order to believe But the outflow of that is a knowledge that comes from experiencing the Lord. As we walk with him and trust him day in and day out, we gain that experiential knowledge of God. So faith and knowledge work like that. Um, The Old Testament, New Testament incorporate obedience and faith together. In fact, in the Bible, obedience is never separated from faith. They're always tied together. Uh, If you read through Hebrews 11, you see Enoch walk with God, Abel offered a better sacrifice, Noah built an ark, Abraham obeyed, Sarah received power, and so on. All those things are faith and obedience tied together. So saving faith always has an attachment of obedience. you got to be careful you don't say, well, if I obey God in everything, then he'll save me, because that's massively wrong. That's salvation by works. 
but trusting in God, I obey what he says and what he tells me to do. So faith and obedience are always seen in Scripture. Faith is trusting, believing, and includes faithfulness to the object. Something that's kind of lost in our day. We teach faith in God. Trusting God and everything will be okay. You'll hear something like that. Believing God is often separated from the idea of commitment. But in the scriptures, that's not the case. Uh, even what we were doing this morning in Acts chapter 2, they believed, they repented, they baptized, and immediately, right falling behind that, they persisted, they devoted themselves to the doctrine of the apostles, the breaking of bread, and so on. So right tied in behind that is a faithfulness, a commitment to the things of God. So in Scripture, faith is always tied to faithfulness to God. Saving faith has many consequences, great benefits. Uh, Romans 5, believers are justified. 2 Corinthians 5, believers are reconciled. Ephesians 1, we're redeemed. And Romans 8, we're adopted into God's family. 2 Corinthians 5, we're new creatures of God. In believers in uh, Colossians 1, are taken out of the kingdom of this world and brought into the kingdom of God's dear Son. It's all a work. It's all surrounding the work of faith. Some of those things come prior. Some of those things come at the time. And some of those things follow on. But they're all around the time of faith. Where does faith come from? Do we muster up faith in order to believe? And the answer is no, we don't. We believe that saving faith is a result of the Holy Spirit's work in the hearts of God's elect, giving them the grace that enables them to believe. Belief is the result of salvation, not the other way around. I know that's very controversial. Some people get very upset and argue with great vehemence against that. They would say, no, we believe and we're saved. And I would say, no, you're saved. You're made alive. And the result of that is that you then exercise faith in God. It's also saving faith is given to God's elect. God does not give saving faith to those who are not elect. Now, here comes a really thorny issue. How do we know who is the elect? Not a clue. So we preach to everybody in the sure certainty that God will save some, right? So we do believe that faith is a gift. Uh, uh, Ephesians 2.8, it's a gift of God. We're talking about uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, that we are, God chose us as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So saving faith comes from God, and it's enabled by God the Holy Spirit working in each of us. Uh, I don't think any of us really can understand the depths and the lengths that the Spirit of God goes to work in us and around us to bring us into the understanding of what salvation is, to trust in God and walk with God. Saving faith in believers is distinct from False faith, and I, I'm using that term, false faith. That's not something I found in a theology book. It's probably not the best term, but I'm going to use it that way just to help understand. There is a difference in Scripture between genuine saving faith and a false faith. You say, give us an example. Judas would be an example. He at some point will follow the Lord. He went with God. He did the things the disciple was doing. He went out and preached. He cast out demons. All those things the twelve did. And yet at the end or before the end, he turned away from following Jesus, in fact, portrayed Jesus to his death. Uh, Simon the magician is possibly an example of somebody who believed 
but there was not a genuine faith in there. The most, the biggest example in Scripture we can find, of course, is those in Matthew uh, 7 who come to the Lord, and he says, on that day many will come and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this, that, and the other thing? And he will say, depart, I never knew you. So those people, for a chunk of their life, had an understanding that they had real faith, and they were doing all sorts of things in an element of faith, but it was not genuine saving faith. Interesting, someone pointed this out to me just the other day. Very interesting that when they come and say, Lord, Lord, they didn't come and say, Lord, Lord, we believed, or Lord, Lord, we have, we claim you, you're our only hope. They say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and do that and do the other thing? It's works that they're generating as proof of what relationship they don't have. And Jesus says, no, depart from me, I never knew you. So very clearly in Scripture, there are those who assume they have some form of faith, but in fact don't. And you say, how would you define false faith? And we looked at Mark 4 last week, bad soil and good soil. I'm not a farmer, but I understand when you plant something, you go through and you prepare the soil by taking all the weeds, pulling them all out, take all the stones, throw them all over the fence, you clear out the soil, you churn up the soil, you plow it up, you put in fertilizer, and you put in all kinds of stuff in to make the soil nutrient. And then the last thing you do is you throw the seed out, and the seed goes into the prepared soil and then produces a crop, a fruit. Well, as he casts that seed out, there's obviously some unprepared soil. There's weeds still there, hard ground still there, stones are still there, and the seed falls amongst that unprepared soil. And you see a little plant shoot up that's got no root, and it dies. And so that's one way, it's a way to sort of picture in your head the reality or the difference between false faith and genuine saving faith. How else do we know? Well, we know this. We believe in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Those who are genuinely saved will persevere all the way to the end. The, the little plant is actually a beautiful picture of that because it grows all the way up to a full mature stalk. I always think of grain, uh, or not grain, um, corn, big ears of corn, right? Like when we had in Canada, you go walk in the cornfields, and then often the corn plants would get seven, eight feet tall, and they'd be laden with corn. And the only thing that stopped them from growing was a farmer coming along and cutting them off. And it's a picture of the harvest day when God cuts all the wheat down and cuts all the, the corn down and all the fruit is taken and gathered and kept. It's, that's genuine plant, a genuine full-grown plant only cut off because God cut it off. Whereas the other plants that are not genuine, they die by themselves. They don't produce any fruit and therefore it's just showing there's no real life there. Okay. Is it the best way to understand it? No, it's just a picture. It's a way to get our heads around it a little bit. So genuine, or the way you can see the difference between genuine faith and false faith is the genuine faith perseveres all through that person's life. They persevere to the end. The second way is fruit that is produced. What kind of fruit does a Christian's life produce? Now this can get, you got to be careful with this. We don't want to look at other people and say, what kind of fruit is he bearing? Well, I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe he's not truly saved. Look at your own life. Examine your own heart and life and see, is there fruit being produced? Now, Jesus did say this. I think someone's flipping like mad to find it. 
he said, you will know them by their fruit, right? What they produce. Does that mean we're to judge them or condemn them? And the answer is no, not condemn, but we're to know. We understand what they are. You've got to be really careful we don't start running around going, well, is he truly saved? Was he truly saved? And scratching our chins and wondering. We will know. We'll understand when we look at the fruit of someone's life if that person really is a believer or not. But you've got to be careful the line between knowing and condemning and knowing and judging. Leave it there. So that's the difference between faith, saving faith and false faith. We also believe... Uh, that saving faith is the Holy Spirit's work in the hearts of God's like I said that a little earlier, just repeating that again. Saving faith is enabled by the Spirit's work. We saw that earlier. Saving faith is authored and perfected by Christ Himself. We saw that last week in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He's the one who creates and authors and gives faith to us. And he is the one that's working in us to perfect and develop and build that faith. You might have faith that's very small. You might have at times in your life have faith that's weak. You will at times in your life have faith that's very strong and faith that is growing. It's, it's not a static thing. It does grow and, and fluctuate in a certain sense. But genuine faith, Christ perfects. He finishes what he began in you. I told you many times, one of my favorite verses growing up as a kid or as a young believer, Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, he who began a good work will complete it. In this case, will perfect it. It's the same idea. So saving faith is authored and perfected by Christ himself. Saving faith comes through the ministry of the word of God. Uh, I, we were talking this, this this afternoon, a few of us around here after the, everybody kind of gone home about preaching and why doctrine is so important and the way the modern church is swinging further and further and further away from preaching the Word of God. I might have mentioned uh, in Puritan churches back in the 16, 1700s, on the side of the pulpit or on the side of the wall was a big iron ring was set into the wall and they would put an hourglass in there. And then if you were a, a much-loved pastor and you loved the Word of God and you preached the Word of God, the church would give you one or possibly two turns of the hourglass. What does that mean? It doesn't mean one or two hours. It actually means two or three hours. So where's my iron ring and how many turns are you going to give me? <laughs> they, they, those guys would preach for two to three hours. What's the point? In that time, in the Puritan era and in the early New Church era, the preaching of the Word of God was so important. Why? Because the preaching and the ministry of the Word of God is how faith comes. The Bible says, Romans 10, 14, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they, at, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And then Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Don't ask me exactly how that works. I do know, I did some study on this in my theology degree. The idea or the fact of when the word of God is spoken and the word of God is proclaimed with a human voice, there is something marvelous that God does through the preaching and the communication of the word of God in a voice 
and he uses that voice and the Spirit of God works in the life of the listener to open their hearts to believe. For example, uh, Acts 16, verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. Notice she heard them. Uh, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. In other words, the Spirit of God, like we said earlier, is what gives faith to us. The work of the Spirit of God um, produces or imparts faith to us. And how he does it is as the Word of God is preached. I think it's always marvelous how you got the Word of God and the Spirit of God, the two things that God gave us without which we would be hopelessly lost. But with those two things, we have everything we need. And so faith comes through the preaching of the Word of God. And faith is a gift of God and the working of the Spirit of God to produce faith in us. Next, saving faith first and foremost has an immediate response or relation to our Lord Jesus Christ accepting, receiving, and resting upon Him alone for justification and sanctification and eternal life. So faith that rests on works, it's not genuine faith. It's now what I can do to save myself. Faith must rest on what God has done, and faith rests on what Christ has done for us. Uh, for example, the Bible says in Acts 16 and verse 31, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Faith's object, you remember the story, 1631, who's talking? Paul is talking to the Philippian jailer, as I understand it. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So he's telling him, you have to believe. It's got an object. In John 1 verse 12, the Bible says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Again, it's belief in Christ. Galatians 2.20, that great statement of Paul's, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live by faith in the Son of God. So faith's first outworking is always in God and in Christ, and that's its immediate effect, or immediate response, sorry. Saving faith is also increased and strengthened by what we call the means of grace. Who's heard the term means of grace and knows what it means? I mean, if you're Presbyterian, you might have heard that before. Means of grace? No? The, <laughs> Well, maybe we should turn the speaker on. <laughs> the term means of grace. Have you heard that before? Yeah, that's it. Yep, okay, exactly. Uh, means of grace is a term Presbyterians use. Um, uh, Anglicans will use it. Some of the more formal churches use it. A lot of Reformed churches use it. Means of grace means this. It's activities within the fellowship of the church that God uses to give more grace to Christians. Like you said, baptism, the ministry of the word, it's God's grace to us. Baptism, God uses that to strengthen our faith, to give us more grace. The breaking of bread uh, is a means of God's grace to us. Why is it so important 
that we meet together and pray together and preach the word together and go through baptism and we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Why are those things so important? Because in our commitment to those things and in doing those things, God gives us more grace as we participate and act in obedience to what God has given us to do. So it's a means, it's it's a way by which God gives us grace. So going through baptism, you say, what's the big deal? We make a public declaration. And I'm convinced when we make that public declaration, God strengthens our faith. Billy Graham, uh, I don't agree with everything Billy Graham said and taught, but he did say one thing that I thought was really good. He said to those who would come to faith in Christ at his crusade, he would say, go out. And I mean, the next couple of days, you tell two people, two of your friends, tell them what you have done. Why? Because in doing that, it would strengthen their faith. Just as surely as going through the waters of baptism makes a public declaration. And that public declaration, God uses it to give us more grace and strengthen and build our faith. Why is it? that so many Christians go through baptism and in the days and weeks following have so much difficulty in their Christian life because they've made a public declaration. They've taken a stand for Christ and said, I believe in Jesus Christ and let everybody know about it by going through baptism. And the devil comes and nails them as hard as he possibly can to try and shake up their faith. But God gives more grace to enable us to get through those difficult times. Through the ministry of the word, through fellowship. Why is it so important? If you missed this morning, why is it so important for us to be in the fellowship of the saints? Because when we're fellowshipping together and we're sharing together around the word of God or sharing together in Christ, he gives us grace and that strengthens our faith and so on. Um, in 1 Peter 2, 2, the Bible says, Like newborn babes, long for the spirit, the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow. Long for the grace that God gives as we read and study and meditate on his word. It strengthens and increases our faith. Genuine faith also produces a conviction that all that God has revealed in his word is true. You've received a tremendous life-changing message through the word of God as it's preached or shared with you. As you understand and we begin to trust God, we also realize that if that message about salvation was true, then what about everything else the Bible says? And that trust in God and trust in what he has said develops in us a conviction that everything else in the Bible is true too. And instead of reading the Bible with a critical eye, uh, I heard a story about a, um, a university professor who was a known atheist. And he said, you know, I've read the Bible and it didn't say anything to me at all. And everybody kind of laughed and, and a, a fellow in the corner sort of very sheepishly put his hand up. And the professor wasn't used to being challenged. And he said, yes. And he said, well, I'm begging your pardon, sir, but that's what you get for reading somebody else's mail. Right? And everybody kind of, ooh. It was a bit of a pointed comment. In other words, you don't believe in God. You don't believe that there is a God. You don't believe that he speaks through his word. And yet you read the Bible and say, I don't get anything out of it. Well, there's no faith there. But when we read the word of God, 
with a conviction that God is speaking and speaks through his word, when we read that, there's a conviction that everything else that's in there is true. Saving faith develops in us a conviction that God's word is absolutely true. In fact, Paul, when he's giving a defense of his faith later in the book of Acts, he says this, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, listen, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Now you could say, well, Paul probably believed that before he was saved. That's probably true too. But now believing in Christ, he all of a sudden sees so much more in the law and prophets. They're all speaking about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. In Acts 26, he said this, to this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. In other words, his faith in God had produced the conviction that the word of God was absolutely true. And the more we read, the more we trust God, the more we understand in Scripture that conviction that what is in here is true will get stronger and stronger and stronger. Here's a little interesting uh, point maybe to help understand it. All of the disciples, except for one, died a violent death. Every, all of them but one. Uh, John, I think, died at old age on Patmos, but they tried to uh, kill him by uh, boiling him in oil, and it, he didn't die. And they, they finally couldn't stand him, got rid of him by putting him on the Isle of Patmos, and God gave him visions of glory uh, to write down. But all of those men were so convinced that what the word of God said was true, that not even a violent death could turn them away from saying, this is the word of God. This is absolutely true. All through history, in Christian and church history, you have men and women who are dying for their faith. Men and women like the, the Lollards. You heard about Lollards? Some of you may have heard about Lollards. Lollards were folks in England, now I hope I get this right, um, who were around the time of Wycliffe. Uh, Wycliffe was the first translator into the, the Bible into English. And these men would spend 10 months painstakingly writing out the Bible. They didn't have printing presses back then. This is before the printing press. And they would have copies of the Bible, and the Bible would be about this big. It was huge. And if you owned a page of the Bible, like one page of the Bible, they would burn you at the stake for it. Men and women and children were killed for owning a page of the Scripture in those days. They were called lollards because they said, well, you have nothing better to do with your time than lollard around, lays around reading the Bible when you should be out working. So they called them lollards. Those men died because they were absolutely convinced that the word of God was true. Saving faith gave them a conviction that God's word was absolutely true. Moving on. Saving faith also produces a conviction that there's an excellency in the scriptures. Who here knows of a book that's better than the Bible? Don't anybody put your hand up. <laughs> there is no book better than the Bible. Who here can tell me everything about one verse in the Bible? Everything that could possibly be known about one verse in the Bible? None of us can. Why? Because none of us can plumb the depths or examine the width or see the heights of all the things that God says in his word, even about one 
verse. I've got millions of words sitting on my shelves in my office there describing and talking about the Bible, and not one of those books comes even close to tapping out everything there is to say about even one verse in the Bible. The excellency, the saving faith produces in us a conviction that this book is not just absolutely true, but it's the best of all books. What's the point of that? Moving on. Saving faith convinces the Christian of God's glory, Christ's excellency, and the Spirit's power and fullness that moves the, the Christian to greater reliance and has an effect on us that when we read the Word of God, it changes us. Uh, who here has ever read Shakespeare? No, a few of you. Yeah, English lit, right? And you don't have to admit it out loud. It's okay. I've read Shakespeare. Yeah. Who's ever read some of the great works of literature? Uh, Milton or some of the poets or, yeah, a few of you. How much did those, those works change your life? <laughs> Nowhere near as much as the Bible. Was, yeah, of course it would. That's exactly it. The, the, the word of God, saving faith, brings that conviction and the excellency of the word of God means we're moved as we read and as we study and as we trust God and respond to what we're reading by faith and obedience. There is an ever increasing reliance and conviction of the beauty, the wonder, the excellency of the word of God and the God of the word. Right. It's not just worshiping a book and, and words. It's worshiping the God of the book and being absolutely committed. So, so saving faith is like a growing thing. The more our faith is built up and increased as we read the word of God, as we fellowship together, and as we obey and are changed, and that faith gets bigger and stronger and increases, and it's stretched. Uh, I'll use this analogy. Uh, who? Jay Cutler. Does anybody know that name? Jay Cutler. I'll give you a hint. He's got a chest that's about this big. He's got arms like this. And now you know who him. Mr. Uni Mr. Universe, Mr. Olympia, seven or eight times. Jay Cutler is one of the biggest bodybuilders out there, or he was in his time. Bodybuilders have to lift weights, right? So they lift weights like mad, and the muscle responds and grows. What happens if a bodybuilder stops lifting the weights? Shrinks back. Yeah, exactly. Uh, some of the, these giants in the 1990s, now look no bigger than Darren because they have stopped that workout process and the muscle has shrunk back. Okay, so the more they lift, the bigger the muscle goes, they have to keep stacking on weights. Uh, Ronnie Coleman was the guy I used to watch and just scratch my head in amazement. He was one of the biggest bodybuilders ever. He'd do these uh, leg presses on a leg press machine and he would have stacks of 25-pound plates like that wide. So a plate like this that much on each end of the bar. There was so much weight, the bar was just bending downwards, and they had to have guys there, and he would lift, and he had legs. And they were like this, massive chunks of meat on both <laughs> legs, right? And the only way it worked was if he kept stretching and increasing the tension and increasing the load on that muscle. What world is my point? My point is that as God increases our faith, so he stretches it more. As God gives us more faith, he loads on more for us to deal with, and he takes us to a next level. I don't walk into the gym and put on that many plates on the leg press machine, get down underneath it, 
and get myself all hunkered up and say, okay, flip off the safety thing. I'm going to push it because in about the tenth of a second, that plate and my legs will be pancaked down together as all the weight comes down, right? I can't do that. So what's the point? God doesn't take you and say, I want you to exercise faith, the faith of George Mueller that prayed in in his time and his currency millions of pounds sterling to support a thousand orphans. The kind of faith that says, get all the kids in the dining room table and we're going to have breakfast. Where's the food? Just a minute. Lord, we have no food. We need some bread, we need some milk, and we need some eggs. And as he's praying, the wagon out front breaks down and it's full of fresh bread. And right behind is another wagon and that breaks down and it's full of milk. And they say, we got all this bread and milk. Can you use it? Yep. Did he, did he start off his Christian life with that sort of faith? No, he started off with something small. And what God does is he gives us something that stretches our faith. And when we respond in faith and obedience, reading the word of God, fellowshipping with saints, encouraging one another, building one another up, and God says, okay, I'm going to call you to do something else. It's a bit harder and a bit more. And God takes you out and stretches out across your limit further and further and further. And we started out in ministry, me traveling to churches to preach, and one day we felt, you know, God's calling us to sell up everything, put all and get rid of it all, and go to the other side of the world and, and plant churches. That, that didn't happen overnight. That was a, the end process at that point of about 12 to 15 years of ministry. God doesn't take us and go, here you go, and throw you off the edge. He says, follow me this step. Follow me this step. And as we do, and as saving faith builds and grows, saving faith becomes that much more convinced that this is the word of God. It's absolutely excellent and true and beautiful and all the rest of it. And the more we trust and the more we respond in faith and obedience, the more God asks of us and the more God demands of us. Because he knows that as he increases our faith, we can deal with it. Moving on. Almost done. Because of that grasp of what God teaches through Scripture and their faith in God, genuine believers therefore think and behave differently with a godly attitude to what, towards what each passage of Scripture teaches. I'm going to read that again. Because of our grasp of what God teaches through the Scriptures and our, our what's the right word, our coordinating faith in God, Genuine believers, therefore, think and behave differently with a godly attitude towards what each passage of Scripture teaches. Faith produces the fruit of godliness. Right? You read, when I hear men and women treating the Word of God with disdain or disregard, or as one guy said to me, oh, yeah, it says that in the Bible once. So I thought, ooh, okay. So once is not enough for you. You have to have God write down three or four times and underline it and highlight it for you before you're going to do it. Once was enough. Once should be enough. In other words, as we grow in faith, it produces a change in us. What do we say was one of the proofs of genuine saving faith? Fruit. Yeah, perseverance, fruit, carrying on. So the more we trust in God, the more we follow Christ, the more we obey what Scripture says, 
And the more we regard Scripture as excellent and absolutely true, all of a sudden there's a whole different attitude inside of us towards what God said and obedience to what God said that brings about that change. It's like if I got a note from uh, uh, Cheryl, you say, who's Cheryl? I don't know, we'll just call her Cheryl, some lady. Sends me a note, right? What am I going to do with that? I don't know. Crumple, 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 throw it away. My wife sends me a note. Ah, that's different, right? I take that note and I read it and I reread it and I reread it and I make sure I understand it. And I know ladies are great at this. They fold it all up and they put a little pink bow around it and spray it with some perfume and they put it in that favorite little desk spot. And that note from their lover is so precious to them because it's a note from their loved one, right? When we begin to walk with the Lord and we follow what God says and we regard Scripture the way we do, all of a sudden every word becomes precious to us. I was sitting in my office when the, the Karen folks were doing their, study, their, their church service today, and I was reading through one of the Psalms, and I was just taking my time to go through every word and every line of the Psalm, and there was so much beauty in it. I just kind of sat there in amazement and just let my, my mind and my heart sink into that Psalm and gl glean as much as I could from it. And it was a really sweet time for me. I don't disregard what that Psalm says. There's an appreciation and faith in God, trusting God that this is his word, trusting God that when I obey his word and believe him for the promises, he's not going to let me down. Saving faith in us produces a change, a godly attitude towards what each passage of Scripture teaches. Saving faith also results in continual submission to Scripture. John 15, 14, Jesus said, You are my friends if, if you do what I command you. How do we claim to be Christ's friends and disobey what Christ commands us? We can't. How do we claim to be Christ's friends and not abide in his word? That's what he said. If you, are, if you abide in my word, then you are my disciples. If we disregard God's word, we have no right to say, I belong to and I follow Christ because I disregard what he says. Saving faith also produces a trembling at the threatenings of Scripture. Isaiah 66, verse 2. He says, All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. I, I, I can only ask myself the question, but you can listen. When was the last time I read the Word of God and it caused me to tremble? To really see what God was saying. We were talking about hell. Uh, one of James's friend was here thing. We were talking about belief in hell and what's true or not. And he and he, I was saying, you know what? I believe absolutely. But the Bible says that hell is eternal. It's an eternal fire. That's what the Bible says. I said, I know that's not a very politically correct view, but that's what the Bible says. When was the last time we thought about hell and just trembled at the thought that the holiness of God is so great, the justice of God is such that an unbelieving, unrepentant sinner will spend eternity in hell? That ought to cause us to just shake in our boots. 
It ought to motivate us to, to live for God's glory, to spread the gospel every place we have a chance to. Saving faith, trusting God that His Word is true and right ought to cause us to tremble at the threatenings of Scripture, but it also causes us, and we'll wrap up with this, it causes us to cling to the promises of Scripture in the conviction that God will keep His Word. Uh, I shared it before, I'll share it again. Being confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will complete it. Saving faith says, I don't see much growth, Lord, but you promised. Abraham didn't see the thing that God had promised. He only saw it from afar off. Hebrews 11 talks about this. And yet he died believing that God would keep the promises. Some of those Old Testament saints, they never saw what God had promised. That wasn't the point. They believed that God was able to keep that promise. That's the point. And they said, you know what, Lord? It's like us saying, Lord, we are convinced that Christ will return for his people. He is coming again in power and glory. And we're convinced if it happens in my lifetime or 4,000 years from now. I'm still absolutely convinced. No wavering on that one. Jesus is coming back. Those old saints for 2,000 years have been dying in the conviction that Christ could come back tomorrow. And they never wavered on it because they're convinced that what God's word said was true. And that conviction, right? This is what this is what we're talking about. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance, the, the conviction almost, the conviction of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's the same idea exactly. We're absolutely convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that God will keep his word. God's word will not fail because God will not fail. That's exactly what Abraham did in, in Romans chapter 4. Flip over there. Romans 4. What's it say? Verses 20, 21, and 22. No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Just stop for a sec. What does Paul mean by that? He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. I think what Paul means is that Abraham was so convinced that God was going to give him a child that he made sure everybody knew the Lord has promised us a son. We're going to have a son. He was down there shopping at the baby carriage store and buying up boxes of diapers. It could be this month. He was so convinced that he glorified God by saying, I know God is going to keep his promises. Verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted or regarded to him as righteousness. But the words it was accounted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised him raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. Sorry. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Brothers and sisters in Christ, saving faith is absolutely convinced and convicted that God will keep his promises, that Christ will return, that he'll finish the work in us. And so because of that, our appreciation for God's words grow 
our understanding of the excellency of it grows. And as we read it and study it and spend time together as the people of God, God strengthens that faith and begins to produce fruit from that faith. And what do we do with that fruit? Well, we use it to encourage and strengthen and build each other up and give glory to God all the time we're doing it. Does that make sense? Yeah. What an amazing God we have, hey? What a great faith. And to think we didn't come up with this faith. It was a gift of God for us. But at the same time, you know, as we stop and as we're about to finish and thinking about this and going back to those men and women who will stand in front of Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this, that, and the other thing? Depart from me, I never knew you. So how do we how do we can't fix the problem, but how do we address the problem? We preach the word of God, we preach the gospel, we come alongside one another, and we share the truth of the word of God with one another that will shore one another up, that will bring the truth to bear that the Spirit of God might use that truth to awaken them to faith. We don't know who is a true believer and who is not. Yes, their fruit can give us some indication. And we can minister to one another better understanding where they're at, but always ministering in the hopes that and the, the hope that God will save and the certainty that God will save some, right? I don't know if I made it more harder to understand or not, but that's, you get it? Okay. Loving Father, thank you so much for faith. Thank you for the truth of saving faith. And Father, those words that Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. Father, we pray that they would weigh upon our hearts. That Father, we would strive with all of our hearts to share the gospel, to minister to one another, to use the word of God that you have given to us to submit to the leading of the Holy Spirit, to share Scripture and pray for one another. Father, we don't know where each one stands truly before you. But Father, we do know that we have the Word of God and we can minister to one, it to each other that you might do your work in that other person. Father, give us the faith and the strength and the conviction to minister the Word of God and pray for one another and leave the results with you. Father, we ask you for your blessing. Give you thanks, O oh God, for a good day, a good time in your word. Father, we thank you for some new members of our church. And Father, we ask you for your blessing and your encouragement and your strengthening for them. Father, build them up through the ministry of this church. And Father, we pray too that as they begin to minister to us, that we will be built up in our faith. Father, we thank you for each other. Lord, I'm reminded that Paul often gave thanks for the saints in the churches that he was writing to, even churches that were in great turmoil and difficulty. He gave thanks for the saints. And Father, we give thanks for this church and the believers in this church and the faithful men and women who have preached and teached and taught and encouraged one another in their faith over so many years. Father, may we be faithful to continue that work until the Lord Jesus comes. Father, we thank you for the conviction we have through the word of God and from the spirit of God that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back, whether it's tonight or 2,000 years away. Father, we are convinced that he will come. 
And so, Father, we look forward to his coming with great joy and eager anticipation. And, Father, we look forward to it. And, Father, we know that we need to get busy to do the things that he has left us to do, to fulfill the Great Commission as much as we are able to. Father, for next Saturday morning as we will go out to share the gospel with folks in Noble Park, handing out gospel tracts, and engaging folks in conversation about the gospel. Father, we pray that you would go ahead of us, that you would open the hearts and minds of those who will be there that day. Lord, you know every single person that we will meet. And Father, we pray that you would prepare the soil, that as we throw the seed out, Lord, that it would bear fruit. Father, we ask you for these things, and we give you thanks again for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.